Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, November 18th. On today's show, I am joined by Tennis.com editorial producer and returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, David Kane, to recap the 2021 WTA Tour Finals. Of course, we had to break down an exceptional week from Garbine Muguruza. She earned straight set wins over Paula Bedosa and Annette Conteve to clinch the title in Guadalajara. Of course, it was a fascinating season for Muguruza in 2021. David and I break down that season, offer our statistical takeaways, and then, of course, discuss where she goes from here. Speaking of that note, where does Annette Conteve go in 2022 following her phenomenal ending to this season? Of course, she won just about everything down the home stretch and to reach the final in this field amongst her fellow elite WTA players. This is a breakthrough run for her. Even though she doesn't end up with the title, she will be on the short list of favorites at the 2022 Australian Open. And of course, David and I want to discuss what she can do between now and then to best prepare for that spotlight. Of course, we break down just about everyone in the field. I don't know how much more we learned about Pliskova, but certainly Bedosa, Sakari, or semifinalist Sabalenka, Sviantek competing in this field for the first time, Barbara Krejcikova as well. We talk about it all on today's show. I know it is an episode all of you listeners will enjoy. Of course, before we get to it, two quick notes. I also had David on the show to discuss everything surrounding the fallout of Peng Shui's accusations of abuse at the hands of a Chinese government official. That conversation deserved its own podcast. As such, we've divided our conversation with David into two. One episode here on the WTA Finals, our episode on Peng Shui, can be listened to on the Great Shot podcast. Feed. I appreciate David giving me another hour, hour and a half of his time so we could record two podcasts 
on two obviously very different uh, stories. But again, right now, Peng Shui, her seemingly disappearance after she has spoken out against a member of the Chinese government, we are all concerned about that fact. And of course, we are all watching how the relationship between the WTA and China unfolds from here. If you are interested in that topic, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, if you've missed any of our content here at Cracked Rackets of late, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, last but not least, got to give a shout out to all of you listeners, to our Cracked Rackets Patreon family, and of course, to our friends at Tennis Point, all of whom make these daily episodes possible. If you need anything to update your own tennis equipment, Tennis-Point.com. You use that promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, that's tennis-point.com. The symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. But with that said, let's get to it. My conversation with David Kane breaking down all aspects of the 2021 WTA Tour Finals. Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With all that said, The other reason we wanted to have you on the podcast here today, David, is to tap into your WTA expertise. And I know, again, you chatted about this with my lesser eyebrowed nemesis on the Monday Match Analysis, but I'm going to pretend you didn't have that conversation. I haven't listened to it yet, so I am unaware of your thoughts. I assume as you watched the WTA finals unfold in Guadalajara, all you were thinking in your head was, wow, Alex, genius. He predicted Conteve Muguruza final from the start. But if that's thought number 1A, thought number 1B, can we just start with the atmosphere? Start with the crowd in Guadalajara, what they brought to each and every session, and obviously more so during the night sessions than at day, but like, they turned into Sabalenka fans, it was delightful, they obviously were powering Muguruza through, they just wanted third sets, they wanted, you know, 6-4, and the energy was just electric. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, I think sometimes a lot is made of there's no one in the crowd, you know, and, <laughs> and we're also dealing with, you know, scheduling, you know, a Wednesday afternoon match at some in some city is not going to necessarily draw in the crowds that you would expect. But f- for the most part, Guadalajara had full crowds, even even in the lesser um, the lesser filled day sessions. I mean, I think there was a lot to do with that. I mean, you, you did have two Spanish players in singles in Palabadosa. Uh, and Garbini Magruza, there was um, Juliana Olmos, Mexican double specialist in the in the event as well. I think you just had a, a really great um, culmination of a lot of different factors. But again, it, this was this is a well primed audience for tennis. There have been tournaments in Mexico for years, and there have been top players coming to these tournaments. Venus Williams is a, was a perennial Acapulco player. Sharapova played in Mexico before. I mean, these are they're used to seeing top names in Mexico. They know who the, they know who they are, and they and they were very willing and open to root for all of them, even if it was sort of what seemed to be an offbeat WTA finals with eight sort of a lot of new names. I mean, top seed Sabalenka, Krejcikova, both making their WTA finals debuts in addition to Bedosa and Annette Kontavite. 
I think it was just Plishkova and um, Karolina Plishkova and Muguruza who were make, who were returning um, WTA Finals combatants. So despite that, I think they really just lifted the um, the tennis. They lifted the spirits of the players. So I think really enjoyed the atmosphere. And um, you know, if 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 there's to be another WTA Finals in Guadalajara, I don't think anybody would be upset about it. Yeah, it led to, as you mentioned, some extraordinary tennis, and we're not going to go through every match. I think, you know, again, just want to talk through. Oh, we could. We could. Unfortunately, this is one of those days where I actually do have some time limits for myself. I know. All right, let's start with match number one then. Uh, No, let's start with Garbine Muguruza, your eventual champion, puts the feather in the cap of what she called the best season of her career. Certainly, listeners of the podcast will know I agree with that fact, uh, that statement, but I call it a fact there, but, you know, for her, loses her first match against Pliskova, 7-6 in the third, goes on to beat Krejcikova in three, beats Kontave in straight sets, dominant in the semifinals and finals in her straight set wins over Bedosa and Kontave. And, you know, again, when you look at Garbine Muguruza's season, yes, some of the Grand Slams, all of the Grand Slams ended a bit disappointingly, but overall for her here in 2021, uh, I believe it's 40-17, and 17, so she's winning 70% of her matches. That's a career high for her this season. She's one of three players to finish the year, top 15 in both hold and break percentage. By the way, at the end of the year, no top 10 club members, no one was top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Muguruza was for most of the season. Sviantec was for most of the season. But you look for Garbine Muguruza, career high for her, hold percentage, 73.8%. Uh, career high for her, break percentage, 41.8%. I mean, again, age 28 years old now, should be starting the prime of her career. I think we saw this. I think this was the peak for Garbine Muguruza. I think you can go back and, you know, again, where the losses came, the injury in Charleston, that's the biggest what-if of the season for me, the you know, her loss to Krejcikova at the U.S. Open. I swear to God, she wins that match. She wins the tournament because that was just the ma- that was always going to be the match where all of a sudden she was the favorite. That was the one where she slipped up. That's my theory. You made a face at me, so I know you disagree. But I could argue from start to finish, at least on hard courts, Garbine Muguruza was the best player in women's tennis this season. And, you know, again, thus far, I think thus, I think she, she was, I think it was a career year. Whew, okay, the hot takes are coming. Um, <laughs> Firing so, them. I mean, uh, look, I, I this is some nice stats. I'm glad <laughs> you did some statting. Um, but you know, it was what was fascinating for me about Muguruza was just how much of her year, you know, started and ended in the first two months. I mean, I would talk about. Um, I mentioned this little anecdote with Gil, um, but I was. Um, when I first started at tennis.com, I felt like every day I was writing about Garbini Muguruza because not only was she winning every day uh, in Australia and the Middle East, she was playing the matches of the day. She was playing Arena Sabalenka uh, in Doha and Dubai. She was playing Sviantec in Dubai and, and, and obviously won the title there, Was made um, made the final in Yarra River, made the final in Doha, made the fourth round of the Australian Open and had two match points against Naomi Osaka. That, to me, that is my sliding doors uh, match of the Grand Slam season. And had sure. she converted one of those match points, um, you look at how that tournament may have panned out differently for Muguruza, who is a 2020 Australian Open finalist, um, and then really disappeared. It was a shame because she came to Charleston, was really excited. I remember she had um, was joking about how Conchita Martinez, her coach, was so um, had been trying to get her to add Charleston to the schedule for a while, and finally she adds it and then immediately gets injured. 
um, and that really derailed her clay court swing. Um, but so much of her, the reason why she was in Guadalajara was based on how she performed in January and February. Yes, she won Chicago in, in, in some style against Onjibor in the final coming back from a set down to Bagel, the Tunisian 6-0 mm-hmm. in the third. But I mean, just Muguruza's career is very much all possible, um, all outcomes are possible. I mean, looking at her draw, it really seemed like it was very plausible after she lost the really tough match to Karolina Pliskova, 7-6 in the third, that she could go 0-3 in round-robin play. She's down a set to Krejcikova, who has beaten her in Cincinnati in the U.S. Open. She was then going to have to play Kontavite, who had just beaten her 6-1, 6-1 in Moscow. Somehow just turns this week around in in a way that I could not have ever predicted, particularly when she did fall behind to Krejcikova, ends up rolling off 26 straight holds of serve uh, between the Krejcikova match and the final against Kontavite, beats Kontavite twice, first to guarantee her spot in the semifinals and then again in the final overcomes Paola Badosa, who was playing a really great second set, but just did not give her an inch served incredibly well um, from the end of round Robin through the final. Um, and most importantly was having a really great time is now, you know, 14 and two in Mexico is a two-time Monterey champion really talked about the importance of embracing the crowd said that her agent, uh, Ali Van Lindonk was like, this is the first time you're really making use of crowd support, crowd energy and, that's something that she's not ever really made use of in her career. As, as she said, you know, she's a player that likes to block everything out, doesn't really want to, you know, get involved with the crowd support and crowd energy. And I think that really lifted her here in Guadalajara. So I think if you're looking for the beginning of next season, this was such an important week for her, not only because she's defending something like 50% of her ranking points right at the start of the season, because those Australian Open 2020 points are going to come off in addition to a lot of those um, other really great strides that she made at the start of the season. This was just such an important moment for her to really reassert herself in a field of new people to really start to say i am the veteran here i am the one with the experience let me show you and i think that was probably the most important thing for muguruza she could have very easily been a footnote at this tournament and so the fact that she was able to to turn around and win it as convincingly as she did again all outcomes are possible for muguruza i didn't definitely didn't see this one coming but based on her technique and just the physicality that she brings to these matches. It didn't ultimately surprise me that she came away with the title, but I'm really glad that she did. I think this is classic Bean, where it's just like the moment you discount her, she's going to make the move. She's going to win the event. That's what we've learned this season. And just for her in particular, she served so well all week long. And I think she won over 80% of her first serve points in two of the five matches, over 70% of her first serve points in four of the five matches. I mean, when she's doing that, it's just the rest of the shots will come. And, you know, it was fascinating for me. I'd forgotten that she was a former WTA doubles finalist, uh, world tour finalist. And just, you know, for that, um, you can see the volleys, the skill set slowly starting to emerge in her singles game as well over the past year. And I thought, in particular, the way she was willing to hit the swinging volleys all week long, I thought that was the difference against Conteve. She took time away from Annette, and in particular, she pressured the Annette Conteve forehand with pace, which I think of, I don't think there's many vulnerabilities, if any, left for Annette Conteve. I think you have to serve really well. You have to be able to blast the ball with depth and pace at that forehand wing, because even if it's hard, if you leave it short, she's going to get a clean rip on it. And Muguruza was able to do it twice. Twice, you know, again, executing the same plan with the same sort of precision to 
earn straight set victories over the most informed player in women's tennis and just you know the way she was able to move as well and obviously the length she has she's what five eleven six feet somewhere around there and just you know she I don't think she loses fluidity despite that size I think her combination of height speed and strength is you know one of those rare combinations you find in the women's game and it just all clicked for her this week. And again, you look at her record overall on the season on hard courts. She ends up 32, uh, 35 and 12, excuse me, overall on the year. I mean, the only bad loss you see on the resume is the loss to Sinyakova in Montreal. Do you want to play this th- game again, Alex? Because well, I can play we, this game We don't you. have to do it again. I just like that and three sets to Tomjanovic at Indian Wells. That's it. Like if we're playing good loss, bad loss, whatever – the rest are at a minimum whatever because you've either got a seed next to your name. You want to say the Andrescu loss in three sets in Miami was disappointing. Okay, she's coming off of back-to-back finals runs and titles in the Middle East. And just, you know, again, Sinyakova, Montreal, Tamjanovic, Indian Wells. Yeah, Krejcikova was a stupid loss. But again, is that like a bad loss? No. There were two blips. Two blips no, on an no, otherwise pretty that. flawless hardcore season. She just, it was, it was such a, what was so fascinating about her season was how it started at like an A plus, And then yeah. I think she was a solid B plus for the rest of the year. And I think we had gotten so adjusted to a plus that everything else really felt like a disappointment. I mean, you have to remember that this is sort of a make or break season for Muguru. So she had not True. been to the WTA final since 2017, you know, was really struggling coming into the start of 2020 makes that Australian open final, but then the pandemic happens and loses all rhythm and momentum. The fact that she was able to hit the ground running in 2021 was really some um, awe inspiring stuff. I mean, again, just as you mentioned, the physicality, just looking at Muguruza over the years, she, to me, if you're building that top spin video game player, they look like Muguruza. (laughs) She can play within herself. She's strong. She's not, she's tall without being too tall. She, everything she does is good to great. There's no mm-hmm. glaring weaknesses in her game. And you would think that that would really carry her through a lot of the last couple of years. And it really hasn't. And so you start, you stop expecting it. But I think dealing with all the different variables this week, the emotions of being at a sort of a homish tournament, you know, being mm-hmm. a Latin American Venezuelan growing up, plant growing up in Venezuela, and then, you know, being so successful in Mexico, being a Spanish speaking player in a Spanish speaking country, dealing it with altitude and dealing with inform opponents, both get, getting both Bedosa and Contabite in back-to-back-to-back matches, the two most informed players of the tour of the last couple of weeks, the players that I personally thought would be in the final. You can't beat that. It's just mm-hmm. the question is, can she carry this momentum into January? And this is something I mentioned to Gil was that that's sort of the double-edged sword of peaking at the WTA finals. And it's been sort of a 50-50 toss-up, whether you can carry that momentum into January. You could be a Caroline Wozniacki and win Australia, or you could be a Dominica Sibilkova and, you know, peak at number four based off of your points from last year and then sort of start taking a tumble. So it's, it's really up in the air whether she can continue this, but I hope that she's able to learn the lesson of embracing the crowd support because I think a lot of fans really like her and want to get behind her. I think she's been a tough player to get to know over the years. She's been sort of closed off. I think this week she's been a lot more open. And I think that's, you know, kind of a lot, a few of her quotes I've started to see on, on tennis Twitter. That's always sort of a gauge of, you know, how personable a player is. You start seeing those quotes and those reactions. I mean, she's a fun personality. I love mm-hmm. her, her dancing TikToks with her and her sisters. I don't know how she gets all of them to like dance and something <laughs> like that, but it's really impressive. Um, you beat me too, it, by she, the way, if I was to have a social media profile, it would look identical to Garbine Muguruza's it would just be me dancing all of the time because that you're right it's it's very fun loving and it's just 
there's an energy about her certainly you gravitate towards and there's also a little f*** you to her where it's just kind of like no 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 this is my court and I you know again I am the main character here of this story and just what you know it's interesting to you know point to that again we're not going to break down every match but you look at the Conteve final you know, she has break points to go up, I believe, to love. A bunch of them there early in the second set. She doesn't convert there. You know, they're playing even. Conteve ends up going up a break. How many times have we seen Muguruza lose that match this season? It feels like, yeah, that three-setter where she was up early, playing well, lost her rhythm, unable to get it back. That didn't happen in the final. She earns that match in straight set victory. She beat Paula Bedosa very badly in the semifinal. And there was just... You know, again, but as good as Bedosa's backhand is, Muguruza's was better. So, again, Bedosa's biggest strength, Muguruza outdid her there and just so much pace into the Bedosa forehand corner. It was actually kind of fun watching Muguruza execute that same sort of game plan three times in the same tournament and just kind of locked in on that backhand down the line, pressuring those stretch forehands from, you know, those two players. Um, but it was she was in domination mode and like i hadn't seen her as a front runner enter domination mode in a little bit of time and it was really again you could argue she's your favorite entering australia she had match points on osaka last year like she she made the final in 2019 or 2020 excuse me her last two australias have been as good as anyone not named osaka or kenan yeah, I mean, I I was a big proponent of Sabalenka going into Australia. We can talk about that later. But, like, based on how this week turned out, I certainly would put Muguruza up towards the top of that list. I mean, I think she's a player who believes that she should be this player. And I yes. think she's certainly been told that by her team over the years. You know, you are the next Maria Sharapova. You are the next big thing. And maybe there has been some problems living up to that and trying to completely, you know, maybe embody that kind mm-hmm. of player. I mean, not everyone is – Maria is a very specific – character and i think even uh, paula has talked about you know the pressure of feeling like she needs to embody a sharapova or even a muguruza ironically enough it's sort of just like this uh this this chain of trauma going through the generations but i mean i think muguruza needs to really embrace being herself like and i think people will really embrace her as a result because she is such a fun personality and she's someone with a game that people can get behind people like to watch that kind of clean aesthetic power game she's a great talker when you can get her talking i think that this is this could be the start of something really phenomenal for Muguruza because, again, after that first loss to Plushkova and going down to Krechkova, I really – it felt like um, rock bottom, to be honest. It felt like this was, you know – I was think I mentioned to one of my friends, I was like, if Conchita can't get this mm-hmm. ship back to the point where, like, if she's on board and this is what we're getting – this feels unfixable at this point. Like this whole situation just seems untenable. And she was able to turn around against a player who she, who has beaten her twice again in the summer and then just run through three, the two most dominant players of the last two months who have been so profoundly dominant and beat all three in three in straight sets. Just, just phenomenal. And I think that that's, that's going to pay dividends in Australia if she can stay fit, healthy, motivated, and sort of in this good mindset we can we can see her get one step closer to that career grand slam she's mm-hmm. two away no, and they're to, both on hard courts to your point her team is bought in too they're all in sync right now the energy they want to bring the desire they have to win right now and you can't put a price tag on that that's immeasurable and obviously we've seen what a Conteve coaching change did for her career clearly the Garbine Muguruza coaching change has helped her here in 2021 and then 
Yeah, to your point, it's the perfect combination of age. She's 27 years old. She's been uh, 28 years old, been around the block, seen everything, won a lot, lost a lot, knows her way through a tournament. There's also the fact that, again, the tennis just makes sense. Like, you see it. When she's on top of the baseline, she can dominate. She's also a good enough mover, physical enough, that overwhelming power, even the Sabalenkas of the world, aren't going to just blast her off the court because she's going to have the pace to dish it right back to them. And, you know, she's willing to move forward. She put a bunch of returns on the court as well. The tennis has never been the issue. It's just, again, putting it together injury-free for the course of 11 months. And to your point... Every title she's won has been on a hard court, except for the French Open and Wimbledon titles that she has. And yeah. it's just like, it works. She's a primetime performer. I'm, I'm all in on Garbine in 2022. And I, you know, again, I was all in on her in 2021. One of my inaccurate predictions of the year is I said she was going to win a Grand Slam this season. I was wrong about that. I'll take the tour finals victory. Um, <laughs> but no doubt, even with this end of year success, why I bring that up, there's hunger there because it's like, how did I miss that window? And it's you can legitimately argue Garbine stays healthy and doesn't hurt herself in Charleston. She was going to be the favorite, in my opinion, entering the French Open. And just, you know, we didn't get to see that this season. And it just feels like all – I mean, do, do Krejcikova and Sviantec feels like feel like locks to dominate at the French Open this year? No. Does Barty is pro- – Barty at Wimbledon is the biggest favorite, I would say – at any of the Grand Slams entering 2022, just because her gra- her having success on grass courts to me makes the most sense. I guess unless we get a fully formed Naomi Osaka, then she's always the favorites on hard courts unless told otherwise. But everything else feels like open season. Like I don't have a definitive favorite at any of the other slams, and Garbine's on the short list at all four. And like, I, how many players can you say are on the short list to win the title at all four slams? Maybe a lot, but I don't think many. Yeah, I mean the fact that she's made the finals of three out of the four, exactly. I mean, puts, makes her makes her a, a really confident lock. In that and sense, she, she gets a Wimbledon quarter champion. of a slam title for me for this year's U.S. Open. No, I'm just just because again she wins in Krejcikova, she wins the tournament. Krejcikova not so. suffered enough. Leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> WT doubles finalist. She's not suffer our champion. She's not suffering anything. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I mean, especially that um, that rivalry between Muguruza and Krejcikova. Yeah. I was glad that. It, Maybe I wasn't glad that that had sort of seemingly um, cooled off. But, I mean, talk about something that really derailed Krejcikova's uh, season, that interaction with Mukaruza. I mean, Krejcikova, at least in singles, has not looked the same. I I would hope that the way that she won the doubles and had such a really great emotional moment – giving recognition to the Velvet Revolution with Martina Navratilova by her side and, and, and Siniachkova there as well. I think that maybe that'll endear her to some to some uh, portion of the fan population and kind of get her back on track. Because I think something that she's been looking forward to, Krejcikova, is having that that warmth. And as much as Muguruza has been trying to block it out, Krejcikova has been actively courting it. So I think that yeah. maybe they've both met in the middle a little bit uh, this week in Guadalajara. Yeah, uh, fair points. And, you know, with that said, I guess last question. I really just... Um, I want to call her Bean. It's just so much cleaner. It's simple. It's one syllable. It's just in and out. But I feel like that's never going to stick, right? Okay, Kayla Day. <laughs> You're getting a Kayla Day shout out on your podcast. That's good. That's First of all, that's right up our alley. The listeners are like, much better, David. Much better. Way too much mainstream talk here. But, you know, we've talked Muguruza. Slip Gears talk Conteve, who we've spent two hours on for your last three podcast appearances, so we can keep this conversation short. Obviously, the run she goes on here to end the season, what was it, 29-3? and three? Something crazy like that here at the end of the year. And, 
you know, multiple titles, wins her way, legitimately wins her way into the year-end finals, makes the final of this event, gets, you know, really good victories along the way over uh, Barbara Krejcikova in straight sets, Karolina Pliskova in straight sets, wins her semifinal match against Sakari. That was a really fun three-set match that, you know, again, after Conteve dropped that second set, you could see, okay, the balloons popped. I've I've given all the gas tank. It's on empty. It wasn't. She found a second win in that, you know, third set. And I I think we've reached the point now where if you don't have weapons to hurt Annette Conteve with the confidence she's playing with and the fitness level she has reached, you're just not going to beat her. Like, again, I talked about Muguruza overwhelming her forehand wing with pace. That's like such a—first of all, Muguruza did it exceptionally well. Like, it's not—it can't just be your basic pace. It's got to be depth, precision, line drive, because that's the only way you can disrupt the backswing. But, like, if you give her a short ball or just anything with her to set her feet on, you lose. Like, that—Maria Sakari, anytime she turned to slice, she lost the point in that th- in that uh, semifinal. And why she won the second set, she was like, all right, I'm making it a track meet. Like, I'm leaving it all on the table here in set two. And they just kind of ran out of gas down the stretch in the third. Like, uh, that's what Conteve is doing to people now is she'll she'll match your fitness level, and then her weapons will beat you in the end. It's just, what's the weakness? Feels good to be right, doesn't it, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Always. rare one for you. I'll let you, I'll let you bask in it. <laughs> yeah. um, listen, no one has been happier to be wrong about Annette Conteve than me. I... I've really enjoyed watching her play some peak, peak tennis. I mean, the way that she beat Simona Halep to win Kluge-Napoca and guarantee her spot in the WTA finals was really extraordinary. A high-pressure match against a player who owned her to just really take the racket out of her hand. As much as Halep has not been at her peak um, last in the last couple of months, I mean, the way that she was able to finish her off. And then I think, as you said, I think in many ways, the win over Sakari, however I think of Sakari relative to the top uh, players of the game, I think was probably the most important match for her um, more so than sort of just, you know, getting the ball rolling in round Robin. That was just, you know, um, residual momentum, just getting her through those first couple of matches. But the fact that she shook off the loss to Muguruza, shook off losing the second set to Sakari and and figured it out and broke from 40 love down and win that really long game to serve out the match. That's growth. Growth. <laughs> <laughs> to see Kantavite really just solidify all of these physical and mental adjustments it's crazy i mean like at 25 years old a perennial top 25 player suddenly just becoming this this superstar is really in many ways unprecedented i mean you can think of a francesca schiavone winning her first slam at 30 or even alina you know in her late 20s making that push but i think with Lina, you could always see the talent and with Schiavone, she always had the craft and, you know, being playing as well as she did on clay. I mean, Concebite had some, had a serious ceiling physically and mentally where she was playing these, these big players and you just knew she wasn't going to get the job done. I mean, I was barely paying attention to her U.S. Open match against Fiance because I just felt it was so not in doubt that Iga would figure that match out. Little did I know that Annette was already in the middle of this Annettesance that I like. I needed to. <laughs> I should have really taken a front row seat to because there were some really good points that Annette was hitting, but I just didn't feel that she had it mentally to get over the finish line. And she didn't there, but she's done it basically everywhere else. I mean, it's just fantastic to see her do that. And again, as one of those players who you worry that the off season might cause a regression, might cause some sort of. I mean, you compare her run to Caroline Garcia. Gar- Garcia won Wuhan and Beijing to make the WTA finals, made the semis of the WTA finals. Again, branding 
whatever happened to WTA championships. It was just a cleaner name. Anyway, I think what is in Contabite's favor is that she has Dimitri Terzanov on her side, a new coach. She's going to have a fresh off season, a new perspective to be able to wind down, work on what she needs to work on and come to Australia on hard courts where she did make a final to start the season. So it wasn't totally out of nowhere, which she did in the fall, but a little out of nowhere, but you know, not having to make some major surface switch heading into January, I think will help her continue this momentum because I mean, looking at the draw ceremony at the WTA finals in many ways, it felt a bit upside down just based on what we were expecting from the number seven and number eight seeds was to make the final and one did and one almost did. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And the next time we have you on the show, we're doing one topic. Who is your 2021 WTA Player of the Year? Because Annette Contefe has put herself in that conversation, and Garbin Muguruza is in that conversation. Barbara Krejcikova, obviously, very much in that conversation. And Barty, honestly, in that conversation. It's a really tough pick to say who was your best player in 2021 from start to finish, but I don't think anyone would disagree. Your best player from the end of Wimbledon onwards is Annette Conteve. And even if, you know, you include the Cleveland title before the U.S. Open, even if you want to throw in that third-round three-set U.S. Open loss to Iga Sviantek, okay, it was a loss to Sviantek. Then she didn't lose. There, You know, like the rest of the way, she lost, what, twice? That That's it. And it's just... She was that good. You're right. Everything clicked for her. And again, 25 years old at the end of this season, it or 26, excuse me, it, it makes sense. It, it just, it makes sense. And for the longest time, you could see all of the tools, but it was whether, you know, A, just a little bit slow out of the corners for her game style needed. It wasn't the elite speed you would need for someone who does such a good job turning defense to offense, but then B... I mean, the confidence she's playing with. You always saw this sort of shot-making ability in stretches during the match. Now, again, if you leave a ball short, she's hitting inside-out forehands. She's going big with her backhand down the line. That backhand down the line. Her the world, audacity. Uh, yeah, a- exactly. There's there's no shame now in anything that Annette Conteve is doing. She is willing to show off that skill set. And as we learned over the course of this season, that skill set is immense. Um, you look at the other semifinalists, Bedosa. Sakari, if Maria Sakari could never play a semifinal in her life again after this year, she may elect to do that. And just if she could get the bye to the finals, she's like, I'll play two quarterfinals, but I'm not going to play a semi. She would take that exchange. That said, again, the longevity for her this season, top 10 in wins and, you know, was pretty good across the board. Maybe not exceptional just because we never saw that big breakthrough title, but in terms of sustained consistency, like, did Owen Shabur really have that much better of a year than Maria Sakkari? I feel like the narrative is that she did. I don't know that she did. And obviously a narrative is a fake construct um, that I'm making up because I don't think anyone's comparing Shabur to Sakkari's season right now. But if we were to do that, like, was Shabur that much better? You look at the numbers, they're both roughly top 15, top 20 clubs. Shabur a little bit higher in both categories, but not by much. I mean, I would say if you make two slam semifinals in the season and the the person the other person did not i would say that person had the better season yeah um that said i i'm gonna make a comparison that might make, make people a little angry but like a lot of what maria sakari was giving this year was a little reminiscent of sarah irani i mean Ooh. it wasn't i mean and people feel however they feel about sarah irani but i mean irani got to number five in the world without a ton of weapons with based on immense physical stamina you know was able to just ride confidence, ride momentum, and would hit a wall 
when she would run into a better player in a big match. And that's really what happened to Sakari for most of the season. I mean, she's an illustration that, you know, hard work can only get you so far, it seems, because she was in these positions at both Roland Garros and the US Open, and again in the semifinals here against Contavite to win these big matches and ultimately ran against just players who are playing better. If you, if you don't want to say they're not better players, certainly players who are playing better in that moment. And mm-hmm. Sakari was not able to come out of that. And she's certainly blaming it, I think, on a mental block. She feels like these are wasted opportunities. She feels like she can get over the finish line. But Sakari is one where you really do worry about her in 2022 in terms of how much she may either whether she's going to break through that ceiling because she has hit a ceiling, whether you break that through or you start to backslide. And typically in these situations, you start to backslide more quicker than you make the breakthrough. And she might be a player next year who, when we're counting top 10 wins for other players, will say, well, you know, two of them were against Sakari or, you know, like a bunch of them were all because of Sakari, which is giving away wins at the start of the season when she was still ranked in the top 10. But again, a phenomenal player, a phenomenal person. I've loved talking to her over the years. She's just so so friendly and thoughtful and is a just tremendously hard worker. The the work that she's done with her team with Tom Hill is just really something to behold. To be able to make this career without having these massive weapons is really fantastic. But um, you know, you go back to that match against Sabalenka, it was a matter of is Sakari gonna get nervous or is Sabalenka gonna hit herself off the court and Sabalenka hit herself off the court before Sakari even had an opportunity to get nervous because you saw the nervous kick in against Bedosa. She didn't even have a chance. At least Bedosa was making balls. I mean, towards the end of that third set, Sabalenka could not keep the ball on the court, and that really was made. It's why she made the semis, ultimately. Yeah, no, I, the thing for Sakari, her hold percentage has improved in each of the past six seasons, was 58.3% six years ago, now 72.3. That's a massive jump. She's improved her first serve win percentage, was 59.2 six years ago, now 68.8. How much more upside is there to go in those two categories? I think that's a legitimate question. 10% improvements across the board, that's exceptional. That's why she's jumped from top 50 to top 20. The physicality will keep her in every match. And I honestly think a Sabalenka is a better matchup for her than a Conteve because Conteve is someone you need to have weapons to hurt. And it's just a little bit harder for Sakari to manufacture that pace. A little bit easier on the backhand wing. But, you know, again, you can press her that forehand side with, and, you know, Conteve continued to do that, and that's when the slices start to come out for Sakari. And, you know, that creativity, which she does have more of than she gets credit for and feel around the court, uh, it helps her on the clay courts. It's why she's adaptable across surfaces as well. But you do wonder about the upside. Like, again, semifinals feels like a good round for her to get to. And then the power tennis or the slightly higher, more well-rounded games of some of these other top 10, top 15 forces give her issues there. It makes sense, I guess, is what I'm saying. And so you're right. She's an interesting one to monitor. A lot of things broke her way this season. It felt like there were openings that she just couldn't quite capitalize on. French Open semifinals, we all remember. But, yeah, She's one to monitor uh, next season as well. And as we rapid fire here through all of them, because unfortunately I do uh, have to go hit another interview here. Don't fist pump it. You know, just for that, I'm keeping you another two hours and I'll tell no, the other I'm person. No, I'm excited. I'm excited for a round. I'm from a, from a, I, okay, like, good. That I was... could talk to you all day. And Thanks. I know you have another interview with 
Gil after this. No, first of all, Gil's not until later tonight. Um, he gets the night <laughs> session exclusively. Um, but no, it's felt like it, Beyonce and, and Shakira talking about you earlier. It's it Arizona. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I mean, all three. Liar we got the good with. news is all three of us were talking about each other, so it was good. And I would say this: any insult I say to you about Gil, I would say directly to his face. I would have no issues uh, doing that. Yeah, no, I mean. Yes, uh, I agree. All of that said, it, eyebrow gangs sticks together. Um, so, rapid fire here. Bedosa. The backhand's real. The fitness is real. Mm. I have some concerns about the forehand as well. Not many, just some in terms of, again, being very good to being elite. I mean, that said, again, real or not real. Do we see her at the another year-end finals in the next five seasons? Yeah, I think the most important thing that differentiates, I mean, maybe not less so Muguruza because we see Muguruza deal with disappointment this season and, and come back and win Guadalajara, but like throughout what has been unequivocally a pitch perfect season for Bedosa by her standards, she has had to deal with a lot of setbacks and yeah. a lot of disappointments, many of which would de- derail an, a, a weaker player mentally or physically. I mean, she had to deal with losing that really winnable match in Roland Garros against Sedanchek in the quarterfinals where, I mean, again, in a, in a tournament where anything could have happened, she could be reigning Roland Garros champion right now. Mm-hmm. She loses her coach, the one that kind of got her on this ascent up the rankings has to, you know, scramble and make an adjustment there. I mean, she dealt with COVID at the start of the season. She was in her hotel for three weeks trying to get a negative test just to get out of the hotel in Melbourne. I mean, these are things that could have really ruined a player's year. And she has been able to put aside all of those setbacks to just come back stronger and stronger and prove herself on surface after surface after big tournament after big tournament to make the second week of Wimbledon, to win Indian Wells, to win her group at um, in Guadalajara after really getting outplayed by Sabalenka for a good first set before just reeling off the last, I don't know, what, 10, 12 games in a row, it felt like. I mean, it was just incredible stuff. And so I feel like for her versus a concept who's really only had an upward trajectory, you're dealing with Bedosa who has had a little bit of both that she can kind of really not feel like this is a complete, oh, and now my season's over and now I'm going to have to start all over again. She's already had to kind of pick up the pieces in many respects multiple times this season. So I think that is going to make her tougher to beat in 2022. I mean, there's always, you know, that sophomore slump, you know, again, she's going to be a top 10 player for the first time and dealing with that. I mean, I think it's good for her that a lot of her points are sort of evenly distributed throughout the season. Whereas Muguruza is dealing with a lot for the first three months of the year. But, um, yeah, I'm. I, I. It's no secret. I'm all in on Bedosa, <laughs> forehand or not. I'm. I'm in. And, and the backhand really has been a revelation for me for the last couple of months. As someone who's watched her play a lot, to really mm-hmm. see her dictate play with that, serve really well as a as, as our boy Gil mentioned as well. Just ten aces against Sakari, mm-hmm. I believe, was really made the difference for her in the end. And, and what was really kind of a nervy two setter um, there as well. But yeah, it was rough to see her not, you know, get outplayed by Muguruza, but she got outplayed. You know, yeah, I, no. I, it's hard to, it's hard to, to falter for that. She ran out of some steam at the end, but she played Sviantek on the backhand even. And like, that's very difficult to do. And that was a revelation to me. And just, you know, again, it, it, you're right. It, it's all legitimate for Paula Bedosa, 23 years old. She would be on the short list on the soccer. You know, it would be Bedosa, Teichman, and Samsonova would be my previews for next year, but Bedosa's already done it, so she doesn't qualify for that list because she's jumped ahead of the rest of the field. Uh, Iga Sviantek, feel better, worse, same about her as you did coming into the season? Well, I guess worse, you know, because I feel like coming out of 2020, it felt like who can beat her? Who can beat her on clay? It's a little Ellie Goulding, right? It's like anything could happen. And it was literally like one of those things. Don't tease me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I mean, Sviantec, I mean, talk about a tale of two seasons. I mean, this was someone who we were already hyping up to like Rafael Nadal levels of clay court dominance. I mean, heading into that quarterfinal, no one was really worried about the, how badly the draw, or not badly, but how um, comprehensively the draw had fallen apart in Paris because it was Iga's title to win. And then when she lost it, and then we all looked at the semifinals and we were thinking, what is happening? And, and thankfully, <laughs> Krejcikova has really taken the torch through the end of the year, making the, the WTA finals and, 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 and vindicating that, that result as she did. But I mean, since Roland Garros, Iga has not been that, you know, indomitable force. I mean, losing to, you know, getting outfoxed by Jabor at Wimbledon, you know, losing to Pedosa at the Olympics and, you know, uh, losing to Bencic at the U.S. Open. I mean, not a, not a bad loss, but I mean, the way Bencic played against Raducanu in the next round, maybe a little bit of a not great loss, but um, not great win. Um, but um, I think it was good for her, you know, sort of mentality that she didn't go 0-3 here. I mean, I think she had the benefit of Bedosa sort of, sort of visibly grappling with how hard to try in that round robin because she knew she had a semifinal to play the next day didn't really want to give no effort, but then mm -hmm. felt like this match was getting long and she felt like she could win it, but how much does she give? And so I think that was a bit of a tug of war, but she really, for me, the Sviantec Sabalenka match, maybe the last two sets, maybe the first set wasn't great, was probably one of the best matches of the tournament, just in terms of high quality, the winners that Sviantec and, and Sabalenka were trading and two very different styles. I mean, that was your contrast of styles that everybody loves so goddamn much in, in tennis and in women's tennis. So, I mean, heading into next season, it's hard to know where to place her, really, because, you know, mm -hmm. she's someone who went from four to 12 in the world because her, her Roland Garros ranking points fell off in the fall and is sort of working her way back now. So I think, again, she's very young. A lot is suddenly being made of how young she is, which is interesting because I feel <laughs> like so much of the initial narrative was how mature and how forward she is for her age. And I think now we're all kind of pulling back because we're, we're afraid <laughs> that she yeah. might be going through something. We're like, okay, she's young. Don't worry, she has time. But again really great technique, a phenomenal athlete. These are all great elements that go into making a great tennis player. And so I think you always give her a good chance and we'll see how she fares on clay and next spring. But I don't, I don't know if I would expect anything immediate from her in Australia. See, I'm going to zag on you. I'm coming out of this year even higher on Iga Sviantec than I was last season because that little brief stretch, did she hit the high of the 2020 French Open? No, but she was within a quartile of it the entire season long. And that to do that at age 20, 21 years old, that proves you're legit to me. To have the consistency she showed week in, week out. Only player to make fourth round at every slam here this season and just you know qualify for the year-end finals. Yes, we didn't see the dominance, but we saw the consistency. And we've already now we've seen both. We saw the flash of dominance at the French Open. We've seen her play a full season from start to finish and be a top 12 sort of player. Now you build off of that. And if this is the foundation that we're building upon, that's a very good place to start for Iga Sviantek. Again, she's just, she did it on every surface, every event possible. She competed, you know, she competed extraordinarily well, beat who she was supposed to beat. That's step number one in, in the, you know, five-step process to becoming one of the best players in the world in the women's game. And so... I agree with you. There are definitely some things you notice. You know, you, the forehand on a quicker surface is going to be an issue for her, certainly moving forward. But the athleticism is there. The weapons are there. I, I'm all in on Iga Sviantek. I remain all in on Iga. I mean, she also has a very unique game that I think yeah. really took players by surprise when she really burst through to win the Roland Garros. And I wonder how much, again, repeated exposure is going to maybe diminish that. But again, mm -hmm. like you said, she did, she, she did prove herself and did, like you said, did that yeah. baseline but again 
it's similar to Muguruza. When you when you show people A plus, and then you give people B, you feel like oh, a little disappointed. Yes, but if this is her B, that's a good B. That's what I'm saying. Like her B is most people's A minus or A, like as a season, and that it felt like a B. I feel like that's indicative of again how much better she can continue to play. And she, we haven't even hit the back half of the 20s or the mid 20s, let alone the early 20s. You know, we're still in those early stages and. Yeah, I like to think I'm a lot better than I was at that age. So uh, certainly she's got far more upside than I do. Last one, I'm not even going to respond. I want to, but I'm going to save it for the next time I have you back. But I can't let you go without hearing it. Sabalenka, we are on the Sabalenka beat together. You talk about those two-week stretches. Lynn's Ostrova last year. If you know it, you know it. Uh, my takeaway is actually that she even won a match, let alone, uh, you know, a set, let alone a match. And she plays two, three set matches, which, by the way, is straight to par for Arena Sabalenka. She just didn't look fit to me. But, like, have you ever seen a crowd go pro Sabalenka on everyone? Love that. That was oh. what I'm saying. Like, Love I don't that. care about anything else. Guadalajara's a win because Arena Sabalenka realized, wait, I can like, it was literally like the Terminator being like, oh, my gosh. This is a thing. And, like, hell hath no fury if crowds start backing Sabalenka and she can channel that power. Because if she can, it's over. Yeah, I mean, especially after what she went through at the U.S. Open where she was not the crowd favorite against Layla Fernandez, it was a little fascinating to see her continue to adopt the Layla Fernandez arm raise. I thought, like, this, wow, she's not here, but her impact is felt in Guadalajara, Layla Fernandez. But, um... (laughs) It was. I went through the gamut with with Sabalenka all week. I mean, she goes up four two forty fifteen on Bedosa, and you feel like this is the Madrid champion. She's playing at altitude. She's playing really great, and then just played a really bad set and a half against Bedosa in a way that was. I mean, you go back. To, you go back to the U.S. Open match, and Sabalenka played a bad tiebreak and a really bad last game. Those were pretty short stretches of bad tennis, but short. This was a prolonged stretch where she was not able to get out of her own way. She figures out Iga Sviantec really plays a great final set. And you feel like, okay, she's got, she's gotten it back together. And she's got to play Sakari who she's won her last three or four matches against. She's got this. And man, then they talk about the pressure on Sakari. The pressure on Sabalenka was really just, it was evident. It was evident in the serve and just felt like she could not get, again, could not get out of her own way. It was up three, one had chances for four, one had chances for four, three, and just let to lose five straight games to not be able to connect your power game against the Sakari for five games in a row. Mm-hmm. Rough. I mean, I think the one good thing is that Sabalenka, again, like Bedosa, has taken disappointment in stride this season. You know, was really saying all the right things after the U.S. Open. Has COVID, loses that momentum that she would have had coming into fifth slam Indian Wells and maybe would have gotten that big title that she was looking for this season. And I don't think the fact that this isn't a grand slam will really cause her to be super depressed about this. I don't know if she'll consider this a huge opportunity missed that she didn't win the WTA finals as prestigious as it is. I think for her right now, it's grand slam winner bust. Um, so I, again, she's got a strong, like connect, like, like connect, like Annette Contavite. She has a good team behind her now. They seem to have a lot of fun. In fact, Arena just posted like a slideshow of all her greatest moments with her coach and her, and her fitness trainer. They seem like a lot of fun. I'm glad that fans are really starting to get behind her. Cause she is a quirky wild personality. She's got this, Again, another audacious game that people can really get behind. And it has the personality, whereas Kansavite can still feel a bit in. You wonder how much this repeated exposure that Kansavite has had to the media that's going to make her come out of her shell a little bit more. But Arena's kind of used to this spotlight now, and I think is ready to – people. enough people know who she is that I think she's willing to be 
she's ready to be adopted by by uh, by a crowd. And it was great to see that happen in Guadalajara. I think for me, I probably would have traded her being the villain to to maybe play a little bit better <laughs> in Guadalajara. But maybe this is a better long term strategy for Sapling to win the crowd over and then really be that feel feel good story in 2022. She was the player that I thought was going to win a slam this year. So the fact that she didn't rough, but I mean exponentially greater chances in 2022 had she not ended the way she did and had Muguruza not ended the way she did I maybe would have felt that that was a bit flipped but right now Muguruza definitely has the lead for me that said yeah it's just it was tough to see Sabalenka really not uh, connect in, in that those important moments fair well with all that said uh again we're this is not the last time we're having you on here in 2021 where can we read you where can we follow you hit me with the plugs Tennis.com, I just got a review of King Richard in theaters November 19th. King Richard in theaters November 19th. And on Twitter and Instagram at DKTNNS on all major social media platforms. I appreciate your follow. Oh, well, as always, Kanyev, you know it is a pleasure to have you. Be safe. Be healthy. We will talk to you again soon. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. A thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. I mentioned this in the intro. I'll say it again here. If you want to hear more from David about everything surrounding Peng Shui, you can do so by hopping over onto our Great Shot podcast feed. We talked about the circumstances of her seeming disappe- uh, seemingly disappearance. We talked about the accusations she made against a Chinese government official. We talked about the WTA response, players' response. Uh, All of that covered again on the Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, I'm going to be talking uh, ATP Tour Finals on this mini-break podcast feed tomorrow with my eyebrowed nemesis, Gil Gross. So I know we haven't hit that topic much on this show. Rest assured, we've got a full episode planned on the topic tomorrow. Uh, Of course, if you missed any of our College Contender Series, we've officially started counting down our top 10 teams entering the 2021 College Tennessee, uh, 2022 College Tennis Season Excuse me if you've missed out on any of that content. You can catch up on it all on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, The Great Shot Podcast, Crack Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel so you don't miss out on any of the action if you need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at CrackRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in day out shout out as well to our friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with all that set for our fantastic guest david kane super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break and we'll talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. 
Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas.